You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Satan, your kingdom must come down. Satan, your kingdom must come down. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Satan, your kingdom must come down. Gonna pray. Hello, everybody. This is Danny Anderson. Uh, Welcome you to a very special episode of the Sectarian Review podcast. Um, You know, we cover lots of uh, varieties of topics on this show. Um, And today we're going to go right into the world of literature. As you probably know, if you're a listener to this show, the the great American novelist Philip Roth passed away uh, the past week or so. And uh, he's my personally my favorite writer. And uh, it was just sort of a natural thing for us to do a show kind of about him like on the heels of his death. Um, we have quite a lot to say. I'm actually very blessed in terms of my uh, my cohort today. Uh, in addition to Michael Farmer of uh, Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Michael, how you doing? I'm good. Good. I was tempted to wave at the camera as if our listeners could see it. <laughs> yes, this is radio. We're, uh, we are looking at each other, though, on, on a Skype call. Uh, Michael, as you know, is part of the Christian Humanist Podcast. He's the, uh, the, the flagship of our network. Uh by the way, while we're on that topic, anything cool happening on the network here lately? I know you guys are on hiatus now. We're on hiatus. Um, I think City of Man posted an episode about gun control a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. I don't remember. It did. It was a good one, yeah. And then uh, I- Before they were live, uh, sometime in the next Thursday, I don't know when this is posting, but Thursday the 6th or 7th, whenever that is, uh, we'll have an episode on Disney shorts from the 30s and 40s. Uh, the Christian feminist podcast has something and given that I'm married to the leader of that show, you'd think I would know more about it. Given that I edited the show, I still don't remember. Oh, it's about uh, Kathleen Norris's quotidian mysteries. That's what it is. So that's already out by the time this comes out. So, uh, yeah, some stuff going on. Yeah, go to christianhumanist.org and you'll get um, links to all these uh, really great shows. Before they were live, is you guys watch through the whole Disney canon and uh, and sort of talk through all the way back from the beginning until however, until you finish, I suppose. Uh, and, and Danny, you will be particularly interested, I think, in uh, we, we one of the shorts we watch is 1943's Chicken Little. Have you ever seen that? I have not. It is an anti-Nazi, anti-propaganda, propaganda film, and uh, it's really crazy. So that's uh, that's on YouTube if you want to watch it, which you should because it's seven minutes, and uh, you'll you'll thank me. I, I will uh, put that in the show notes. In fact, that's uh, that's great. Um, and well, and Michael uh, and I, we all kind of know each other actually through uh, various academic uh, networks. But uh, Michael and I are very grateful to welcome Matthew Scheip, uh to the show today. Matthew is uh, the president of the Philip Roth. Society, uh, which I'm a member of. And so when uh, the, sh- the idea for the show came, uh, Neil Gusman actually suggested it, although I was already working on it at that point. Uh, and uh, I immediately thought, I wonder if Matthew would do it. And, uh, and he graciously agreed. Matthew, uh, how are you? 
I'm doing well. It's great to be with you guys. So I have to first commend you on the theme song to your show. I love that. I mean, I know the Uncle Tupelo version better, but I love that. That was wonderful. So, yeah, uh, but it's great to be here. So that is a Spanish band that does sort of Americana old timey music called the Blind Revelators. Uh, I discovered them yeah. on YouTube. I think they're defunct now, um, but they let me use their song for their for the opening of the show and uh, go to. I don't know where you find bands, band camp and all that kind of stuff. And you can find their, their stuff. They have a Facebook page still. Um, uh, so Matthew, uh, do you want to tell us about you since uh, you're sort of new to, uh, to our listeners? Sure. No problem. Uh, well, I teach at Washington university in St. Louis. Uh, and for the past, I guess three years now, I've been president of the Philip Roth society. Uh, it's a society of mostly scholars, but some fans who are interested and dedicated to, uh, talking about and studying Ross, Ross work. Um, right now we have a membership of about a hundred people. Um, and we try to do events every, every, every few years, but it's a nice cohort of, uh, academics who work on work on Ross Ross work and there's a journal uh, Philip Ross studies yes there's a uh, journal Philip Ross studies which comes out twice a year um, uh, and uh, yeah uh, you can go to Philip Roth uh, society.org I think is our website I probably got that wrong <laughs> up the plug um, <laughs> you think you would know <laughs> but if you go to the website you can get information on the society we have a newsletter that comes out a couple times a year um, we're planning our next conference which should come be happening in uh, April 2019. So, uh, and the journal itself, which is again comes out uh, twice a year, uh, and it's a good for a single author journal. Journal, I think it does a really, it's a really excellent, uh, excellent journal. So it is. Oh. And Matt, Matthew and I are both members of the uh, John Updike Society as well. Another excellent single author uh, <laughs> society and journal. So. Which they're in Belarus right now, right? Isn't the yeah, up they're ready to go up? there? Um, they're going to uh, yeah, Belgrade is where they're having their first uh, international conference or the first conference that's um, taking place abroad. Um, we actually skipped that so we could do this show, Danny. Exactly. That was that was <laughs> I had foreseen this coming, and I knew this would happen. <laughs> now, uh, I was supposed to be in Belgrade, but. Um, uh, we just had our second child on Valentine's Day, and we have two kids now under, uh, goodness, Dylan is now 20 months, and Lucas was born on Valentine's Day, so our house is a little hectic, and trips to Belgrade were uh, vetoed, by the, you know, vetoed, so. Um, sure. That's, uh, congratulations, by the way. Um, oh, thanks. For some reason, I'm thinking of Ross' book, The Prague Orgy. Um, when I think of anything <laughs> Eastern Europe, that, that book comes to mind, um, which I love. I actually taught that once, uh, believe it or not. I taught it at Case Western Reserve for a, a class. Really? How did that go over? So- um, it was pretty good. Uh, it was part of a theme, and I'm trying to remember what how I worked it was in. Was the theme orgies? I, no. Um, <laughs> Misleading titles and books or something like that. Yeah, yeah. No, I, we naked lunch. We were doing something in which I was kind of using Plato's Republic as a model for uh, sort of an archetype for storytelling, mm-hmm. and um, I see a lot of sort of uh, Plato's Republic in the uh, the way that he describes the communist government of uh, of uh, Prague in there, and so okay. I, I kind of used it for that. This was part of my master's thesis, and so of course, as a grad student teacher, that's what I went to. But uh, so, yeah. Um, and yeah, the book is not nearly as filthy as almost any other Philip Roth book. Um, no, no. <laughs> despite its name. Um, and it has nothing to do with this conversation right now because we're talking about the Updike Conference in Belgrade. But um, and uh, yeah, so I div- if you, you know, Google Philip Roth Society, it really is a great um, academic society that does. It's not. 
limited in the way that a lot of academic work is limited. It is, it does reach across to sort of lay people, if you will. Um, and, uh, I agree. yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and the journal itself, I think is pretty readable. If you're a fan Excellent. of Ross, um, if you enjoy his fiction, I think the criticism in there is not your typical academic jargon. I yeah. think it's, it's a very approachable journal. So. A- absolutely. What's, what's the uh, membership fee? Matthew? Uh, the membership fee, uh, very good question. Uh, if you want to join without a member, without a subscription to the journal, it's just $20 a year. Uh, if you're subscribing to the journal and live within the United States, it's $50. Uh, international, it's $55. Uh, and the subscription gets you to, uh, the, if you subscribe, you get two issues of the of the journal. So and, it's not a bad And one last thing about this before we move on, this is an extended plug. <laughs> For the, uh, for the journal. Um, but there is also a graduate student award for uh, graduate student research. I know that there yeah. are people who listen to the show who are in grad school. If you have, if you do some work on Roth, um, you can submit to this contest and, uh, and there's a, a, there's a prize, the, the Siegel McDaniel yeah. prize. So there's a prize. Yes. Monetary prize, uh, and help, um, I think on most occasions get the article published in Philip Ross studies. Um, and the call for that's usually in October. Um, one last plug though, I guess, while we're doing plugs yeah. is we are planning on doing this conference, uh, on Roth and on Ross work, which was already in the works before his death. Um, but it will take place, uh, early April, 2019, um, on NYU's campus. So yeah. very excited about that. If you're getting interested in Roth, uh, check out our website and there'll be more information and a call for papers soon. Yeah, I've enjoyed the I'm sort of part of the back channel conversation about that. I'm mostly lurking in it, but um, I've enjoyed some of the uh, the uh, chatter about that planning. So um, I'll feel a little insider baseball. I don't think I can talk about it here, but it's uh, it, it's been fun to watch, actually. So, um, well, let's get into the uh, the topic of day. Um, Philip Roth, um, one of the great American writers, certainly of the 20th century. But I think, you know, if you think about American novelists, Philip Roth is going to be one of the first people you think of after maybe Melville and Faulkner, right? I mean, he's, he's going to be in that conversation. And, um, um, Matthew, do you want to give us just a little bit of a background, a little brief literary bio, who he is and where he comes from and where he fits? Sure, no problem. Uh, well, Roth was born in Newark, New Jersey, uh, a site that he often returned to, uh, in his fiction, uh, uh, and a site that he's often associated with, um, born in the early 1930s, begins his career in, in the mid-1950s with Goodbye Columbus. Um, uh, the stories start appearing in the mid-1950s, and the book itself appears, I think, in 1960. And really starting with that book is just a sort of amazing and remarkable literary career. Um, uh, really one of the most prolific novelists uh, and writers uh, of his generation. Really, I, I pair him with John Updike, I mean, they're, they're two writers who both appear um, in the mid to late 50s, early books in the 19, 1960s, and stay on the scene for, again, a kind of remarkably long amount of long and sustained uh, amount of time. Um, of course, Ross' big breakthrough was with um, Poor Noise Complain in 1969. It's a scandalous novel, kind of a book of the uh, sexual revolution and of its moment. Um, but for me, uh, what's most interesting about Ross' career, and really what distinguishes him, I think, as an American novelist, is how his career progresses. And for me, it's the later books. It's the books really starting with The Counterlife in 1987, when Ross's already in his mid- mid-50s, where he just produces a string of books that are nearly sort of unmatched by any other other American novelist. Um, and the Counterlife in 1987, um, 
uh, American Pastoral, uh, Sabbath Theater, 1995, Operation Shylock, um, just a, a series of uh, uh, great books, Patrimony, a lovely tribute to his, to his father, uh, a sort of wonderfully mid to late career run that, um, you know, I, the only other sort of American novelist who I can think has that sort of re, kind of rejuvenation at, at that age is Henry James, really. Um, yeah. uh, I mean, for me, Roth would be important uh, if his career stopped before the counterlife in the mid-1980s. But really, what he does after the counterlife ends of the 1990s with American Pastoral, Sabbath Theater, uh, The Human Stain, really is what I think makes him the most one of the most remarkable novelists of his generation of the, of the American canon. Um, again, he's often compared with Updike. They're both were, they were born a year apart from each other. They're writers who um, kind of were compulsive in their production uh, producing yeah. a book a year i mean if you can see my bookshelves behind me i mean there's a big stack of updike and a big stack of roth i mean it's just a sort of unbelievable amount that they produced um uh, but where you know uh where roth i think gets a sort of trump card is the work he produces in the 1990s um again he wins a series of literary awards pulitzer prize for american pastoral he won, wins a national book award um uh, just a sort of, just a sort of really sustained run um, in the '80s and '90s. That just is sort of um, really, again, uh, it's hard to think of another writer, American writer, who's uh, who's had a career quite like that. And at that same time, Updike is really winding down. Um, the last two decades of his career, I mean, there's some good books, but nothing like. I mean, even Roth's last few books in what, 2007, 2008. Mm-hmm. I think those are those are really high quality books. Yeah, I agree. Uh, we can talk more about uh, Ross' late career, but the sort of slim books he produces at the very end, um, Nemesis, Indignation, uh, The Humbling. The Humbling's probably, I have to, I'll, I'll put a star by The Humbling. Humbling's probably my least <laughs> Sure. Uh, I was uh, thinking uh, Indignation and Nemesis. Nemesis. So they're both wonderful books, and they're very sort of self-conscious in what they're doing. They're so very self-consciously late books um, uh, in terms of their style. They're, they feel much more pared down than... Um, uh, early and mid-period Roth, um, but really just um, um, books that are, are deeply felt and kind of reflecting of uh, the kind of writer's engagement with history, but the writer's engagement with age, too. Um, um, yeah. yeah. They're nostalgic and death-obsessed. And <laughs> yes. They're good. <laughs> yeah, they're good, good happy stuff. Um, <laughs> I mean, have a lot of happy books. <laughs> I love Updike, and he's again. I'll, I'll probably over compare the two writers during our conversation today. But um, uh, I mean, after Rabbit at Rest in 1990, uh, the only really expansive novel Updike produces is In the Beauty of the Lilies. Um, his books become much more idiosyncratic, and I love their strangeness in some of them. And books like uh, 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 Toward the End of Time um, and uh, Seek My Face, but they don't have the reach or the grasp of. American Pastoral or um, or The Human Stain or, or Operation Shylock. Can we talk about Roth's relationship with Judaism? Yeah, that's uh, that's actually a good transition. Um, he's part of a, uh, a big tradition of Jewish American fiction. This is kind of a major component of 20th century American fiction is the sort of cadre of Jewish American writers. And, and Roth is 
at least it, uh, shares that um, the the primary spot with Bello, uh, with Saul Bellow himself. But Roth is is one of the most important, if not the most important person in that um, that milieu. Matthew, do you have uh, some insight into that? Sure. I mean, it's an interesting relationship. Um, uh, certainly, he belongs in that sort of group of writers. You mentioned Bellow, uh, Malamud, um, who really form the the cohort of Jewish American lit uh, that really begins to sort of emerge in the in the 1950s. And Ross, on the younger side of that, uh, in many ways, is seen as this sort of slightly um, younger generation. And I think because of that, always had a sort of strained relationship with that sort of with that sort of title. Uh, there's, of course, a huge backlash in some parts of the Jewish community against Roth, especially after the publication of Goodbye Columbus charges of uh, self-hating Jew. And then th- those attacks even get more, I think, sustained when Portnoy's complaint is, is published in 1969. Uh, so it was not always a sort of warm relationship between the Jewish community and Roth. Um, in many ways, Roth was, you know, kind of wonderfully ruthless and brutal on his depiction of 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 Judaism and Jewish life. Um, his relationship with those older writers is also sort of interesting too. I mean, um, uh, with with Bello and Malamud. Um, I mean, Malamud is a sort of figure in Ross fiction and, and the Ghost Rider. And um, yeah. uh, if you if you're familiar with that book, um, as is Bello. He's the I think the other writer that 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 young Zuckerman encounters in, in the Ghost Rider. So yeah. he's certainly writing with those two two other novelists in mind and writing against them in sort of interesting interesting ways. Um, I mean, in many ways, I think Roth is always trying to strive, is, imagines himself much more as an American novelist than a Jewish American novelist, and is always sort of, I think, wary of the, of the, uh, of being kind of siphoned off in that, in that way. Yeah. And he like, um, there's a, a point at which it's been a while since I've read it. He writes a kind of a, a review of Malamud, right? And we associate Malamud much more strictly. I mean, he is the most Jewish American writer probably. Right. right. Uh, and so he's uh well, maybe Cynthia Ozick or somebody like that. Right. But um, singer. In, yeah. In terms, well, yeah, yeah, singer, of course. Think, yeah. Um, but in terms of the, the triumvirate that we're talking about this bellow Roth and Malamud, Malamud is the most kind of settled within that particular identity. And Roth writes a rather kind of dismissive review of him in that way. And I think it's part of this uh, vision of himself uh, as something that transcends that limitation. I mean, he sort of, yeah. he uh, his fiction obviously never lets go of being Jewish all the way up to the plot of a plot against America. I mean, that's extremely important all the way to the end of his career. Um, but as, as material to think about what it is to be a, a human American more than um, as an end and of itself. And so I think he was a little bit, uh, maybe too eager to dismiss uh, uh, Malamud, I think, for mm-hmm. kind of settling into that identity. Because um, I, I happen to really love Bernard Malamud. I, I think he's one of the lost treasures of American literature that mm-hmm. nobody cares Danny, about. Danny, if you ever want to do an episode on The Assistant, I would love to. Uh, I would love to talk to you about that novel. I, I love The Assistant. We'll put it on the list. I, I love Malamud. And, and every time, this is one of those things where I think the Academy gets things wrong sometimes. And so for whatever reason, Malamud is passe. He's not taught anymore. Um, and no right. one writes about him, uh, anymore. Um, when, and I make a point to assign particularly short stories, but also novels. And every time I assign Bernard Malamud, it's like the favorite thing that my students from that semester, they love Bernard Malamud. Uh, I love and, yeah. Yeah. And so, um, uh, I think that's where I kind of, 
harbor a little bit of resentment against Roth, although he, he backed off on some of that later on. But in his sort of youthful vigor, I think he shamed Bernard Malamud a bit much. But uh, um, because there is this really rich tradition, I mean, Malamud is, is invested in that of the immigrant, the Eastern European Jewish immigrant, right? And this goes all the way back to Abraham Kahan um, with uh, the rise of David Levinsky is sort of the prototypical uh, Jewish immigrant novel. Uh, and I love that novel, too. And you have people like Mary Anton and a whole slew of sort of people writing about the immigrant experience and people like Irving Howe, of course, um, Oh, memorialize that in his great book, World of Our Fathers. Um, and Irving Howe, incidentally, is one of the people who really have a strong reaction against Roth for kind right. of shaming Roth that tradition a little bit, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, there's actually some, uh, and we'll talk about what Roth does with the Zuckerman books as a way of kind of fictionalizing his real life drama. Um, and so let's kind of hold off because he does something with Irving Howe that's like actually quite hilarious. One of the funniest things he does, I think, in all of his work is what he does with Irving Howe. Um, but um, but yeah, so I think as a as he has this really essential relationship with Jewish American fiction, and yet it's almost essential because he resists it so hardly, uh, so 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 uh, fervently. Michael. Don't don't you think there's something generational about that? I mean, um, I, I can never remember what's a first generation American and what's a second generation American. But Bellow and Malamud's Malamud, I've been pronouncing it wrong all these years. Uh, Bella Bellows and Malamud's parents were immigrants, so they're first. They're the first Malamuds and Bellows to be born in America, I believe, or in Bellows' case, Canada. Whereas Roth's parents, I believe, were not immigrants. Is that right, Matthew? I believe yeah, that's, that's right. true. I, yeah, I think uh, his parents were born in in the, in the states, um, and so Roth would have been second generation. Uh, so I, I think you're going to get a different. You're going to get more of a rejection of the old ways from somebody like Roth than you are from Bellow or Malamud, and then you get third generation Jewish American authors like Michael Chabon or somebody like that, who in some ways are returning um, to to the interests that Roth pushed aside a little bit compared to the first generation is that do you, do you think that's fair i i do i think in fact um if you think about specifically the holocaust one criticism that later writers would make of people like bellow and roth um is that they kind of avoided it except in the most implicit ways uh i mean it's sort of certainly there in uh in even bellow's early work right um but it's never like tackled right it's just something that um is just sort of part of the subconscious of the the jewish american writer but uh, not something that they go into and whereas people like michael shabon and certainly cynthia ozick um they go into that they kind of correct um this sort of oversight and reclaim i think much more fervently this distinctly jewish identity and so in, in some ways roth's sets an example that other people rebel against. I mean, he's, uh, I, I would get a little bit of the T.S. Eliot tradition and the individual talent. Uh, we can talk mm -hmm. about Roth as an inheritor of a tradition that he's rebelling against, but also the establishing of a tradition that later people, uh, that later writers are sort of wrestling with and, and knowing how to, uh, or figuring out how to rebe rebel against. And so, uh, Matthew, because he, he explicitly denies that he's a Jewish American writer at, at various points. He, he, the, the quote I heard, was would you call Cheever and Updike Christian American writers? Which right. that's an interesting move to me because Jewish American can mean ethnicity as well as religion. Um, so I, I don't know his his relationship with with his Jewishness with Judaism is very uh, very complicated. 
that's a big subject in Jewish American studies is what is Jewish American, what is Jewish literature? And in fact, that's the name of a seminal book. It's called What is Jewish Literature? Is that, is that Nesher? Is that Worth Nesher that wrote that? I think that's right. Yeah. Um, Hannah Worth Nesher, uh, the seminal, I mean, that's a, a, a question that scholars have been tackling right from the beginning is how do we define this? Is, is E.L. Doctorow get included into this, um, a conversation because he's ethnically Jewish, even though his work never seems to actually make any use of that. Does he still get counted in that? And this is sort of an open question. Now, Roth makes it sort of easy because even though he denies that he, that essential identity, his work dives right into it anyway. So he's easy to include in this. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> um, um, by the way, so, so we're talking about a little bit um, about the influence that Roth had. I think I, I want to talk about this at some point, Matthew, and this is, I think, as good a place as any. Both of us were sort of privileged to be at his 80th birthday party. Um, yes, the, yes. the Roth Society. Do you want to tell that story? Because I, I still have a hard time thinking of it as other than a dream. But uh, go ahead. Sure. No, it was really one of the more surreal experiences of my life, I think. Um, and it was before I should. Uh, it was before I was president at the Roth Society. It was when Amy uh, Ozerisky was uh, was was president, and uh, there was a conference. And we were doing a symposium on Roth, and it happened to align with his 80th birthday. And and I think from the story I gathered. Um, there was just a sort of synergy between the society and his publisher wanting to throw a sort of 80th birthday celebration for, for, for Roth, and we decided to, to couple these two events. So uh, we were in Newark, New Jersey um, uh, for this, uh, and there were, I, I think, two days of academic panels, but the big event was a sort of celebration of Roth, where Roth um, – Roth appeared at the Newark Library, and there were readings. Uh, Jonathan Lethem uh, read. Um, oh, I'm gonna have to refresh my memory. Uh, there were five speakers. Hermione right? Lee um, was there. Yes, Hermione Lee. Um, um, Claudia Pierpoint was there, right? Okay, was oh, she yeah. there? I don't actually. I don't remember. Um, gosh, it's, um, it is a blur. I have a. I have a book that that has all the speeches. That's all. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. trying to remember. There's they did publish someone, that. And, and, that, and I think C-SPAN has it recorded. C-SPAN yeah, recorded yes, it. Yes. Um, and I think if you probably just go to their website, you could watch it online. I'll look for that. I, I bought a, a, a DVD from C-SPAN. I've got the book, too. Yeah. We actually sell it at the website. I've got a box of them. <laughs> if oh. anyone wants them, they're twelve fifty. It's a lovely book. <laughs> oh, well, I'll, put, I'll, just, I'll just put the link there. <laughs> uh, can only remember a couple of them. Um, Perfect for date night. Exactly. Exactly. Um, <laughs> But then there was this reception where Roth, um, uh, you know, Roth was there um, and we're bumping out. I mean, I was standing in line waiting for a Sprite behind Don DeLillo, just kind of <laughs> lurking behind Don DeLillo for 30 minutes. Uh, and there was no alcohol at this thing, which would have been wonderful just because I needed it had been nice to have something to take the edge off. But it was sort of, you know, it was a wonderful case of just literary stalking, uh, just staring at DeLillo with his, I think it was Sprite I and mean, yeah. non-caffeinated choice for DeLillo. Uh, I just remember his purple Jonathan sweater. Sawyer was there. Um, <laughs> Lethem was there. Um, oh, um, Nathan Englander, I think, was there. Nathan Englander was there. Um, Paul Auster. Oh. Paul, Paul Auster was there. Paul, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Um, Louise, of, um, Louise Erdrich, um, she gave a toast. Yeah, gave a really sort of saucy toast to Roth <laughs> that was. Um, very sort of memorable. Um, and I'll never uh, freak. What I'll, what I'll always remember about that is that when she was 
I, she was sort of hesitating or, or at some point there was like a break in what she was like. She was trying to find the right words. Uh, and Roth, of course, as only he would, says, I thought you were going to jump out of a cake. <laughs> oh, man. Um, and Nicole Cross was there. That's the other. Oh, Nicole that's, Cross was there. Right? OK, yeah. It, it's, um, it, yeah, that's the the whole thing was just like surreal. At some point, I kind of knew the academic conference. That's why I was there. Um, I gave a paper on the human stain and whatnot. And the uh, uh, the other part of it, the the reception, I kind of didn't really even know that that was part of my package. Right? I felt like I was just swept into this, and someone was making a terrible mistake by allowing me into this room by standing next to all these people. And and, and I, like I knew we were going to hear him talk, and, and we were going to see that. But then like we're there cutting cake, and 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 then we got in line and got to speak with Philip Roth. And and I'll just never forget how awkward that was. And he was very kind to me, and and uh, made me say I didn't want to get in line. My my my. Oast, my uh, Judy Oster, my uh, dissertation advisor, was also there, and uh, she sort of made me get in line to speak to him. And, and, and so I, I got up there. And I didn't want to say anything. I just wanted to shake his hand and say, "It's a pleasure to meet you. I don't want to bother you." And, and now I'm going to leave. And he, and he has held onto my hand. He says, "Okay, what's your name?" <laughs> he just sort of talked me through the process. <laughs> and uh, and then the whole thing was just like weird and magical and and very strange. I wrote a little blog post at the time that I reposted. I remember that. It was quite- <laughs> Good, yeah. I reposted uh, uh, I reposted that uh, the day that he died, and so um, if you go to our Facebook page, you can find a link to that. But it, it kind of captures my memory of it at the time, and um, so anyway, yeah, it was a really strange thing. But you see the adoration that he had. There was not only the, the old lions like Don DeLillo, who's another peer of his for sure, right? Right. Um, there, those folks are there, Paul Auster and that and that generation. But the, the younger Jonathan the, the Leatham, the Englander, the Saffron Foyer, and Nicole Cross. I mean, that was um, yeah, that was unexpected and kind of wonderful. And yeah. to see um, how his uh, yeah, to see how the the younger generation was not so much was embracing him at this, at that point in his career. I think was really sort of interesting. Yeah, and this yeah, is, I had the same sort of similar experience of meeting Roth. I was very nervous <laughs> about doing it and kind of hit on the edges and finally got in there and yeah, mumbled a few words. But then I just remember. He had some sort of extended family there uh, that kind of barged in right when I was meeting him. Uh, and so I quickly got, got out of the picture. But I think in some like Roth family photo, you'll see like uh, you'll see my curly hair like strung out. You know, like, who is this guy? Who is this? You know, I'm hoping I'll be confused for a sort of, um, you know, extended member of the Roth family and some some bad, bad version of family history. It reminds me of a scene from Zelig. You were uh, you're sort of standing in the background. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, uh, you know, you know what Jacqueline Suzanne said about Roth. Uh-uh. She said that um, he's a good writer, but she'd never shake his hand. Oh, right, right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have heard that. <laughs> yeah, someone told me that if you ever go to a Roth conference, don't shake anybody's hand, right? And so um, that was. Uh, <laughs> and you know, I went right well, to the story. Of that, this is a total aside. Um, one of the. Biggest perks of being president of the Roth Society, I got an invitation this past year uh, to participate in a documentary on the history of masturbation. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, it, it was like, and it was a very, it was the funniest uh, email I've ever received in an academic setting. It was just like, hi. We're doing a history of uh, masturbation. Um, would you like to participate? And, and, and then there was like a little bit about Philip Roth. Oh, in the documentary. But, uh, I see. Yeah, yeah. Documentary. 
I'm advocating for a you know a plaque in my department on office. You know, um, a, a new specialty. Um, um, but uh, are you in the are you in the documentary? <laughs> no, now it's become a book. I was very disappointed because it was such a great email. I, I, I replied and said, oh, you know, I was intrigued. I was like, I've got to, I would regret this. And then they're like, well. We lost funding for the film, but now we're doing a book on it. So I'll let you, uh, you know. Um, How academia <laughs> the book, works. The history of masturbation comes out. Uh, we can, you know, maybe do another podcast. Well, how academia that. works is there will be a department of masturbation studies at some point, and uh, <laughs> and, and you could have been on the cutting edge of that. So um, I, I missed my own moment. I'm, yeah, my, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> that's amazing. Well, let's get into Roth's like uh, style. This is that I love that I could talk about that night all all day. But um, what about what is distinctive? Uh, maybe Michael, you could take this. What is distinctive about? Roth's the style of Philip Roth. What makes something Rothian? Uh, but I guess it's not just talking about like prose style, but also subject matter. But yeah, what, what comes to mind? Because I definitely think it is subject matter more than it's prose style. Because I I think one of the interesting things about Roth, especially compared to Updike, is that his style is very malleable. Um, I saw an obituary that called him committed to traditional realism, and that's just an absurd thing to say <laughs> about Philip Roth, who, right, I mean, yeah. his fifth fifth or sixth novel is about a guy who wakes up and he's turned into a giant breast. <laughs> you, you know, I mean, it's it, so, so he's not, he doesn't, I don't think, have one particular style. I would say um, what's more typical is the degree to which he's obsessed with... Uh, death with um jewish tradition and and with families that are committed to it with newark new jersey of course um his relationship to newark changes over the years i heard an interview with him where he said the best thing that ever happened to his writing about newark is that newark burned down i guess there were riots there or something and it became a it became an ex-city in some ways and then could be the subject of his conversation so i i think you've got to think more about the ideas he's hovering around than you do about his particular prose style but that may be because i'm so familiar with with Updike, whose prose style is so distinctive that maybe Roth, maybe I'm missing something in the way Roth writes. What do you think, Matthew? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think he's a stylist in the same way that Updike is a stylist. That being said, I think there is a sort of typical Roth style. I mean, we uh, when Roth gets the sort of head of steam going on a sentence, uh, and uh, there's a sort of wonderful Rothian rant that for me is the sort of bedrock of his style and sort of outpouring of of indignation one of his favorite alex portnoy's favorite word is indignation and it's a word that keeps on cropping up uh in in ross fiction but in terms of a style you almost feel this indignation propelling sentences forward you have characters who just can't stop themselves from talking uh in many ways ross fiction um is a sort of collection of voices that just can't help themselves. Um, but in terms of being a sort of deliberate sort of style in the way that, you know, the sort of wonderful pointillist nature of Updike's prose, uh, Roth is very sort of different in nature. Roth for me is abundant. It's a sort of sentences that just can't, and people talking who can't help themselves. Um, but even know. compared to someone like Bella, right? Bella's got that wonderful kind of floating, ebullient yeah. quality to his prose, and I, I don't see, I don't see anything quite that distinctive in Roth. Although you're right, that kind of angry rant is typical, and you 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 see it in full bloom in Portnoy and in other ways in the other books. I, I agree right. with that. Right, and especially, uh, I mean, Bella. You're, I think it's a that's useful counterpoint too. Um, Roth, for me, is characters talking, whether it's a first-person mm. there, 
and and poor noise complaint or whether is the sort of variety of voices collected in a novel like American Pastoral um, is these voices sort of talking you know at each other um, whereas Bellow there's always that sort of guiding intelligence um, Bellow's always sort of showing off in a sort of way all that he knows and sort of propelling that into his prose where uh, whereas there's less of that sort of guiding hand in, in, in Roth. Let me, now I'm going to ask you a crazy question. Do you okay. see Faulkner in Roth in that sense, the, this collection of voices? Because w- when you said that, I immediately thought Faulkner. Yeah, um, and maybe this is, um, you know, I often teach Roth, uh, I teach American Pastoral a lot in a, a course I teach called The Art of the Novel, and I pair American Pastoral a lot with uh, Absalom, Absalom. And they're very different. I mean, they're very different books and they're very different styles in a sense but there is a same sort of interest in collecting voices i think um and a sort of you know faulkner's prose is much thornier and, and convoluted but uh roth uh, is more pleasurable uh, to read than, yes, than faulkner yes, yes yeah um, then also faulkner's themes i think i mean faulkner's obsessed with death faulkner's obsessed with with the traditions that hold you back and the traditions you need he's obsessed with this this one particular place that's as well drawn as roth's newark yeah i I agree um and for me uh, absalom absalom and american pastoral two novels that just pair incredibly well to each other they're both very much about our ability to know the past, our ability to, to know history, and that sort of connection of fiction, the necessity of fiction, of telling stories, of narrating stories, and the sort of fallibility of stories and, and constructing a past. They're books that seem to me very much aligned in, in what, they're, what they're doing. Um, but in, in terms of in style, I mean, in terms of a collection of voices, um, I, I think you can make a good case for connecting Faulkner and Roth. Um, I like that. I like that idea, Michael. I know that at some point you're going to read at the end of this show. I want us to read our some favorite passages. Um, and I know that you had said something. You're going to read something from the Human Stain. Where is that in the Human Stain? I don't want to jump on your. Uh, uh, I want to read something from the beginning. If that's not what you were going to look at, so uh, in in the vintage edition, it's page forty four. Okay, this is way before that, so I won't I won't steal I won't rain I won't steal your thunder here. Um, as an example of that kind of ranting prophetic almost voice I, I think the opening the beginning of the human stain is uh as a good example where he serves com- he sets up the clinton lewinsky sc- scandal as a kind of backdrop to what his the kind of moral indignation the moral panic that his main character coleman silk is going to be experiencing in this book um and so uh, i don't know where to begin because this sentence um uh, goes on and on but uh, let me just start in the middle. It's on page two here. 98 in New England was a summer of exquisite warmth and sunshine. In baseball, a summer of a mythical battle between a home run god who was white and a home run god who was brown. And in America, the summer of enormous piety binge, a purity binge when terrorism, which had replaced communism as the prevailing threat to the country's security, was succeeded by expletive uh, for oral sex Um, and a virile youthful middle-aged president and a brash smitten 21 year old employee carrying on in the oval office like two teenage kids in a parking lot revived America's oldest communal passion historically perhaps it's most treacherous and subversive pleasure, the ecstasy of sanctimony, which is one of my favorite phrases. Um, and that's great. And, and so, yeah, that's kind of, he has these kind of magisterial ways of putting a person's uh, situation into this grand context that covers Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire, baseball race, 
race, the uh, or home run race, the uh, the Clinton Lewinsky scandal, all the way through um, the past, you know, red scares and all that kind of thing. He has this kind of grand vision of America that comes out in these ranting long sentences, these prose that in that, in that case, I can't imagine Faulkner using the expletive for oral sex. Right. Um, uh, but, if, but, uh, but Roth does it. And so he has this kind of, there's a street level, uh, to his language as well that I think infuses it with some energy. Uh, and, and so, and it kind of, uh, I don't know. That was the first Roth book I read, and I was immediately hooked because of sentences like that and observations like that. So, yeah, no, you're right. The register, the kind of play in language, uh, the different sort of types of types of language. I mean, uh, it's one of the things that makes Roth's prose so so lively and so so engaging. I also think Roth may be one of the last authors, and Updike's another one, whom you might look at to try to find a definition of capital A America. Yeah. I'm, I'm not I'm not sure that's a that's a thing people do much anymore but that would align him with somebody like Faulkner or Melville or Hawthorne whom he, he mentioned several times in the human stain including in the passage I'm going to read so I, I I think in some ways another thing you can look to Roth for is for this definition of this overarching national consciousness even though I think he has disdain for it even as we could look at him to produce it yeah right I feel like um, one thing Lionel Trilling um, complained in his, in his day about uh, American fiction, uh, the problem with American fiction as opposed to British fiction was that America didn't it didn't have a weight to it. There was nothing to oppose, right? It was all just kind of middle brow for him. And so he called it the weightlessness of America gave authors nothing to kind of push back against. Right. And I, in this case, I think he's wrong, right? Obviously Faulkner is pushing back against the totality mm-hmm. of Southern history. Right. Um, but Roth particularly, that's what he uses Jewishness for. That's what he uses Newark for is this kind of um, calcified culture that is a kind of prison for the individual, right? And it's something for the individual to resist. And so he invents these voices of resistance. And so I think that this is a, a one of his great strengths was to find, as Roth, one of his great strengths as a writer was to find things to push back against, right? And, and to find way, find things in the, the mundane, everyday, normal cascade of life to, uh, to push back against and to create really compelling um, fiction out of uh, to make sweet leave of an interesting character is, is very, <laughs> that's not easy. <laughs> you have this sort of guy for whom everything seemingly goes right. Right. And so he still finds a way to find something for him to push against. And I think that that's, that's kind of his genius. We're back to indignation. Okay, right. <laughs> right. It's the key word for rock, I think in a lot of ways, but uh, just to even contextualize a bit more, um, I mean, I, I often place Roth, I mean, I think the generation of writers that is born in the early 30s who are, you know, childhood and adolescence is spent in the Second World War and the kind of post-war boom, who were too old, slightly too old, in their mid-30s, mid to late 30s, when they're experiencing the late 60s. It's sort of a wonderful sort of historical perspective. I mean, uh, Roth, Updike, Joan Didion, Toni Morrison, Don DeLillo, Thomas Pynchon. I mean, they all belong to this to this to this generation, and I think it gives them a sort of wonderful sort of. I mean, it's a wonderful accident of history to kind of experience the post-war boom and the 
onslaught of the 60s uh, from the vantage point that they were able to. Um, it gives them something to push back on. They're always sort of returning, all of those writers in their own way, are returning back to their childhood and pushing back against certain things and responding to the sort of um, uh, what Ross would call uh, a plot against America, the unforeseen, right? The unforeseen yeah. of history, right? Uh, it gives them a sort of wonderful sort of vantage point on all of that. So they are sort of constantly pushing back on sort of myths of, of, uh, of, of nationalism, of what it means to be an American, while also there, there's an attachment for all those writers, I think, for what, what that story means, too. So it's a wonderful sort of accident of history that all these writers are, I think, responding to. Yeah. But, I mean, also, that's one definition of what it means to be an American, is, is, right. to, is to push back against that. So I, I think, in some ways, in, in pushing back against that, Roth becomes more American than he was before. And, and again, if you're going to call him, if he's not a Jewish American author, he's got to land somewhere. And I think where he would prefer to land is American author. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I mean, I think he, likes, he sees his competition as always was Updike as later DeLillo, um, um, Pension. The, the the group of writers is who he, I think he imagined himself sort of writing along alongside alongside with and against. So certainly Updike. I mean, there were two writers very much aware of of each other. And he's a voracious reader. I mean, uh, to, I mean, he was extremely well read, right? And so it wasn't like he was writing in a vacuum. He uh, he read as much as he wrote, and and so or probably more so. Um, and one last thing about. His, what makes something Rothian. I think it's important to note, and I guess we touched on it a bit, but there's like phases to his career where you can sort of read something that's clearly from an, an early phase versus a middle versus a late, right? And this ranting voice that I just read from the human stain comes from the late phase of his career, right? You have this kind of, only an older person could write sentences like that. We have this sort of vastness of history within your your own experience. Um, if you go back to the early phase of his career, Goodbye Columbus is probably an outlier. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a perfectly crafted set of short stories. I mean, that that those short stories are so well, like tightly written. They clearly kind of, to me, I associate them with sort of MFA program, right? They're, they're um, yes, like, scripted almost um they're like perfectly crafted and then he he starts exploring this kind of henry james phase uh, with books like letting go um and you have these kind of bigger like magisterial uh personal stories kind of right that that kind of well there's a moral heaviness to a book like letting go yeah Yeah. um i mean he's uh trying to his way into literature i think was in a sense trying to emulate the seriousness of someone like james and feel it in a book like letting go exactly uh, which is a book i think he you know by the end of the career he didn't much want to talk about but for me it's a sort of wonderful uh it's a wonderful book to get through the first year of grad school. Uh, yeah, yeah, it really right? is, yes. <laughs> Letting go is, is it's sort of a wonderful, um, you know, if you need a 500-page book for a guide to grad school, Letting Go is the book you need to read. Absolutely. So, uh, and, and t- I read it two weeks before I took my first full-time job. It was uh, – it's kind of bracing. So that's yes, yes. So, I, well, yeah. But then after that, the breakthrough really is Portnoy's complaint in 1969. All right, um, ten, which is ten years into his career, of, right? Yeah, right. Uh, Roth kind of you know, rejecting the sort of seriousness, but also the sort of um, kind of explicitly literariness of his uh, first two novels, uh, "Letting Go" and "When She Was Good," and discovering his own sort of voice—a voice that's you know. As much inspired by you know James as it is by Borschtbelt comedy um, and yeah. the sort of Lenny Bruce yeah yeah um, and that becomes this sort of way in um, 
Yeah. And then in the in the 70s, the voice, he's still sort of in the sort of manic, portnoy mode. You can feel him struggling what to do next. I mean, there's a sort of series of wild comedies in the, in the, in the early 70s. Uh, the Great American Novel, which is a book about baseball, sort of big, big book about baseball, but it's a screwball comedy. Not for everyone, but I, I found you know, I found it funny. Yeah. The Breast, as you mentioned. Um, our, and, our, uh, gang. our Gang. Yeah. Which is our a, Gang. Really, Richard Nixon, it's a wonderful book to read. Um, it's, um, yeah. uh, and it slightly preceded, uh, the, you know, uh, the Watergate hearings and the, uh, and the discovery of the tapes. So history was not that much, you know, yeah. Ross imagination wasn't that far off. But, That's uh, is it, is it meaner than, uh, Coover's the public burning? Cause that is a, that is a vicious anti Nixon book. It's, it's less <laughs> self serious. They're, they're mean. And so, yes. It's less serious than, um, um, uh, the public, yeah, the public burning. So, um, but it's it's pretty mean. I mean yeah. it's pretty it's, it's pretty awful. <laughs> the, the the one line, the one moment from the our gang that I remember is uh, Nixon lamenting over not over so, so he went, he's okay with massacring people in Vietnam but then someone right. says well, what if one of them's pregnant and then you're sort of doing abortions right and so, <laughs> and so and then Nixon has this sort of moral panic over gosh if someone's pregnant then that's we're talking about something different now and so that to me actually is still like a really vital like joke that he's making uh, an observation about a certain strain of conservatism that yeah uh, it seems still, not irrelevant to uh, seems, 2018 does it it seems very relevant no, to today um, but yeah, th- that's a, that clearly in that kind of post Portnoy, we have this explosion of a comic voice that totally breaks with the Jamesian model that he set up. Um, and then his solution, I think, is a brilliant one. Uh, and I think this is what kind of made Philip Roth Philip Roth, uh, in that he makes Philip Roth the subject of his books. And so by doing all this crazy stuff, starting with Portnoy, but really going back to Goodbye Columbus, this offensive, this material that is in one way or another offensive to some group of varying size. Uh, and, uh, and then making that controversy, he's like one of the literary, it's hard to imagine literary figures who are also celebrities today, but that was Roth's position, right? And so he made that kind of celebrity controversy the subject of his of his fiction. And so Portnoy's complaint, um, written by Philip Roth, becomes Karnofsky, written by Nathan Zuckerman, right? And so you have this kind of I'm going to deal with the real life drama that my fiction has caused me, and that's going to be what propels my new fiction. And that of course reaches its apotheosis, as you say, in the counter life, uh, when he has this extremely postmodern narrative um, that brings that to its natural end, I think. And so, um, but that's that sort of middle phase. And then he becomes the, the serious old man, right? <laughs> the, the, the fountain of wisdom with the American trilogy and Sabbath theater and, and that sort of thing. And so he has these really distinct phases, which um, makes his style much more uh, complex than a lot of people want to give him credit for, I think. Beyond style, I mean, you mentioned the counter life, and I think it's worth mentioning how experimental some of those books um, are. I mean, they're, for lack of a better term, what most people would consider metafiction or, or, or postmodern, right? Uh, with the counter life, Operation Shylock, where you have the character of Philip Roth is a character in the novel, where you have an, you know, someone impersonating Roth trying to lead the Jews out of Israel, um, sort of wonderfully uh, elaborate, elaborate novel. Um, uh, Deception, another a sort of minor book that comes in, the, in that same sort of run, I think it's published in 1990, again, which is just a collection of voices, but one of them that's Philip, always playing with that sort of mirror of fiction and reality in ways that um, 
I think if you're described, if Roth is described as a realist, that makes very little sense. Is the book is far too far too experimental. Uh, um, you wonder what they read. Like, like <laughs> Portnoy is the famous one, and Portnoy is not exactly a realist novel, is it? I mean, that, that's no, not the first no. word I would use to describe it. No, there. Um, no, uh, and certainly there's a sort of a return to realism to an extent in Sabbath Theater and American Pastoral. I think Louis Manon's review of American Pastoral talk and discusses it as such. I think it's Manon, but uh, he's always he's far too experimental. I think, and in, in terms of what he's doing narratively, in terms of narrative scope, uh, even in a late book like Exit Ghost, which is a really tricky, it's the final book in the Nathan Zuckerman uh, series, uh, where you get an older Zuckerman. Uh, always sort of playing games with um, uh, what's what's the real story and how we understand uh, the yeah. nature of fiction. So yeah, and and how it relates with biography. I'm thinking of his sort of biography, autobiography, the facts. Um, right, and, right. and so it's it, he's, it's what is it? At the end of the '80s, he writes this. Uh, at that point, you expect it's right after the counterlife yeah. and uh, yeah. at the very end of the book, and it's a very staid um, autobiography for Roth. And then you get to the end where his character. Nathan Zuckerman has this wonderful epilogue where his advice is don't publish this, right? Yeah. Don't your, you know, your life is much more interesting when seen through the sort of mirror lens of, of fiction. Um, don't, yeah. don't do this, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. He sort of plays with literary expectations. At that point in a writer's career, you might expect some sort of reflection on his life. I mean, he's been 30 years in, in the business here at that point. And, uh, and so he opens it with a letter to Nathan Zuckerman presenting this autobiography of Philip Roth for his approval. And then Zuckerman gives him some feedback on it where he tells him it kind of sucks. You know? <laughs> and so it's uh, right. that, that sort of, uh, you know, he's got uh, interest in the game, right? He needs to exist as a character, right? You don't want to be uh, made redundant. So, yeah. Uh, yeah so it, it's, it's very, I mean, he, someone, you wouldn't think of someone of Roth as Roth's stature as being a postmodern writer in the way that, you know, DeLillo or Pynchon is right. But he extremely uh, participated in that and, and actually pushed it forward. Right. And, and actually much earlier in his career than um, I think most people would give him credit for. I mean, you mentioned Portnoy's complaint. That's hardly a sort of realist novel, but my life as a man, which is actually the first book in which Nathan Zuckerman is introduced. Uh, and he's introduced as the fictional character of another, of a, of a fictional <laughs> character. Right? Yeah. So whenever I try to explain that in class, my students head sort of explodes. <laughs> um, um, uh, so, and that book comes out in 1975. I mean, yeah. he, he wasn't sort of jumping on the the postmodern train, if that makes sense, late. He was he yeah. was very much interested in these experiments in the in the you know mid period of his career. Yeah. Well, let's move on. I mean, you can't talk about Roth without talking about the controversies that have always surrounded him, right? And so um, early on in his career, he's writing these very funny comedies uh, that are like short story, kind of almost Woody Allenish uh, vignettes of Jewish life in in Newark, right? And so. Uh, it's so not too far from World War II, right? In the, in the experience of the Holocaust. And so there are lots of people within the Jewish community who are made quite nervous about this. They, they're doing quite well in America. There's this successful process of assimilation been happening as it had in Germany, uh, generations before. And here we got somebody that's drawing attention to our community and making us distinct, right? And so, and doing so, doing so in ways that are somewhat, you know, 
making us uncomfortable. It's disrespectful, right? right? You know, and so people like Irving Howe, um, Irving Howe really turned on him with Portnoy. But um, but before that, there were lots of other people, members of the Jewish community who were made quite nervous about him. Um, And that sort of carries on through his his career. So, I mean, do you guys have anything to say about those controversies and, and how they're kind of resolved? Are they resolved <laughs> <laughs> through fiction? I suppose, right? Um, that's that. He, again, that's one of the things he turns into the, the into the material for the Zuckerman well, it books. Subject matter for one of his books, the the Ghost Rider, really, where you see him really wrestling with uh, the young writer's responsibilities or lack of responsibility to uh, a Jewish community. Um, it is interesting, I think, how um, you know. Depending on which Roth you're getting, how um, Jewish establishment, however you want to figure that, um, felt about Roth. I mean, yeah. um, they certainly, there was discomfort with his initial stories in Good Columbus. Poor Noise Complaint made him a sort of figure of notoriety. And then a book like uh, Patrimony, which is, a, again, a memoir of his father and uh, really, I think, brings reader. There's a kind of nice, more gentle Roth that I think brings establishment readers back on. Or even today, a, a book like The Plot Against America, which is a sort of imagining of a sort of counter American history in which Charles Lindbergh uh, defeats FDR uh, yeah. in the presidential election and America stays out of the Second World War. Uh, there, there are books like that that seem kind of tailor made for for, for uh, readers to sort of attach themselves to and that quells some of the controversies. And then Roth tends to explode, the, explode that with the, you know, the very next book. Um, now, uh, in, in terms of writing, writing about subject matter where there's questions of, of a Jewish identity or religious identity or where there's questions of, of sexual identity that make readers uh, uncomfortable. Yeah. And, and do, you think, do you think part of the issue here is that American Jews have become – had become more secure in in American culture um, than they were in 1959 when Goodbye Columbus is published. I, I mean, Eli the it, fanatic. It, it, it's it's weird to say that in 2018 because I know that it, it it's it's now been revealed that anti-Semitism never went away. Yeah, <laughs> but I I I would think that uh, the American Jewish community would be less nervous in 1984 than they were in 1959. I don't know. Certainly, certainly. And that's when really it's that late fifties, early sixties where I think Roth really feels the wrath of, of, of that establishment in ways. I think certainly I think helped shaped him some, shaped him some, his sense of a writer. I mean, I think it was a really deeply traumatic uh, moment for him. Uh, if you read his memoir of the facts there's a chapter devoted to that to that episode that where you really i think feel how much it both surprised him and, and bothered him stayed with him so yeah um and and some i mean in the last decades of his life i mean he's a beloved figure in the jewish community right so he, he sort of just maybe through longevity and maybe people people finally getting the joke uh that uh accepted him to a degree where he's kind of just, you know, pri- a prized member of the community, you know. And so, I mean, I think even Irving Howe uh, turned his uh, opinion around a bit on him later on. But, um, and actually, I wanted to talk about how. So Howe has a really bad review of uh, Portnoy. He really hated Portnoy's complaint. And um, and I think it was in commentary. There's some commentary major publication. It's a big, long essay called Philip Roth Reconsidered. Yes, so, yeah. Uh, and, and so Roth makes a character of him called, what's his name, Milton... Apple or somebody, yes, some, is oh, that, something like that, yes, yes, yeah. and uh, and and he's 
he is some sort of like foil for Nathan Zuckerman, right? And at some point, someone in the book asks Nathan Zuckerman who he is, and he gives this name, and then he asks him what he does, and he says he's a pornographer. <laughs> and I publish, <laughs> I, put, I publish a magazine called Lickety Splits, <laughs> <laughs> which is the most, the funniest thing I think Roth ever wrote, right? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and so he found a way to just – ramp up you think you think that's offensive let me show you what offensive is right, <laughs> right. uh and, and it is only i can in fiction right and so um it's one of those it's one of those i don't know just uh irascible features of his of his character that i think helped also make him kind of beloved and sort of win people over over time so um so um, also, and, and so this is the sort of big one, misogyny. Like this is sort of a big accusation that people have made from the beginning of, of Roth's career. Um, what are your thoughts on Roth and women? He is, it's a difficult question that you can't honestly just ignore. No, I agree with you. And I think when teaching Roth, um, there's always moments that are un- uncomfortable uh, in terms of how female characters are viewed. Um, thinking of a book like The Dying Animal, um, the sort of emphasis on, on the breast. Um, there's always sort of moments that where uh, I, I wouldn't call it misogyny, but where there's a certain sort of male, where there's a male view, a male, male gaze that's being privileged and being lingered on, and where women are often uh, are often sort of these objects of desire. Um, uh, I mean, Ross, fiction itself is very much about sort of, uh, you know, I mean, in many ways, I saw someone describe Roth as being sort of giving the history of the sort of human male body. Um, and book fiction is very much interested in the male body and male desire and hetero, heterosexual sort of relations. But his depiction of women um, can be uncomfortable. That being said, um, I think there's certainly some very there's some sort of wonderfully fascinating female characters in his in his fiction. Um uh, so I, I, he's not someone who's incapable of writing good female characters. Um, but in terms of how the body is discussed, how sex is discussed, I think it can be, I think it is a problem. I think that it's something you have to be upfront of front, front about when you're teaching, teaching Roth. Yeah. I don't know if there's a good defense for it, I, but that being said, I, I, I bristle against the term misogyny because it just suggests a level of, of, um, kind of flatness to Ross fiction that I don't think is quite there. Um, I think it, I think it's more complicated, complicated than that. Yeah. Um, Daryl Horn actually wrote a piece, uh, an opinion piece for the New York times uh, in the wake of his death and her complaint. I mean, it's a critical piece um, based on this kind of uh, this argument. And I don't know that she calls him misogynistic in it anywhere, but let me just read a little piece of it. Um, Uh, Of course, most writers lead with characters like themselves. And for Roth's contemporary Jewish readers, his warts and all portrayal portrayal of people like himself was an honor, inviting them into American literature. But that was the outer limit of Roth's imagination. His strength lie in those brilliantly rendered voice characters and voices like his. His weakness was that those voices denigrated just about everyone else. His caricatured women are merely a symptom of this lack of curiosity. Um, I really like Daryl Horn. Um, I don't really agree with that assessment. I feel like that's way too big a statement to make about uh, Ross fiction. I think that... Um, um, I think that there are much more finely drawn female characters. I really think that Fania Farley in uh, The Human Stain yeah. is, a, is a fascinating mm-hmm. female character, right? Who has a strength and dignity 
that is outside of his narrator's ability to even comprehend, right? And I think that's part of what makes her fascinating. He's unable to objectify her. Uh, and, and so I think that, um, I think that's that Horn's, you know, assessment is, is not quite right, though I get what she's saying. Um, he's most, mostly focused on himself, right? It, this is, he's thrown into that generation of male narcissists, they call them, like, uh, like Updike, right? And so, <laughs> uh, and so, uh, and Roth is, of that generation and therefore that is going to be inherent in his fiction um and i'm not again dismissing some of the really kind of icky uh female representations that there are they are there and they are uncomfortable to read right and and so and it is not something you can just easily dismiss but i don't think that it's as simple as saying that well he's either a misogynist or he just has a lack of imagination i think that there's a much more complicated conversation to be had there yeah, no, I, I would I would agree. Um, and in, even in a later book like Exit Ghost, where you have a character, a younger female character named uh, Jamie Logan, I think is her name. Um, there's a sort of curiosity about those characters and the sort of male male narrator's inability to access them, just as you're describing, Danny. I, that I think, for me, there's uh, I, I think explodes the sort of binaries that you that that they're often set up as Roth as misogynist. Uh, I think it's much more complicated as you're as you're suggesting. So, and, and I just feel like Roth is the kind of person that I don't know could exist in today's political environment where everything is a binary black or white black or white moral issue, and if anything challenges some sort of uh, kind of moral um, consensus that. The mainstream liberalism has decreed. I think it's just labeled as misogynistic or this or that, right? And and reduced to only that. And so I think that Roth is. Um, I feel like he retired at the right time. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. And just well, even reading Roth against a younger writer like Jonathan Franzen, I think there was a piece by Katie Royce, I think surname, who who wrote about this about five or ten years ago. But if you read Friends and you have a lot of self-loathing and awful sex, uh, even in David Foster Wallace, a lot of sort of self-loathing and awful sex. And at least in in Roth and Updike, um, you have characters who enjoy it, so there might be something <laughs> <laughs> said, said about that, right? Um, uh, Royce had gotten a lot of flack from the uh, online feminist community because yeah. of that piece, yeah. too. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it was an interesting argument, um, especially if you go back and reread Franzen's The Corrections. I mean, there's, um, uh, I mean, Franzen's his own sort of issue, but um, um, it's a, it, yeah, um, it's a, Roth is not is more complicated, and it's a hard it's a hard conversation to have. It's a necessary one when you're teaching Roth in the classroom, um, and I think it makes certain books of Roth harder to teach. Um, oh yeah, uh, I've never tackled Sabbath Theater, which is I think in many ways his finest novel. Um, but yeah, I, I'm not sure how you teach that novel in, in, a, in a lot of ways, um, uh, or even a book, a slim book like the. Uh, the Dying Animal, um, uh, which I think is again a really powerful book, but be tricky to do in the classroom and i think you would end up in a sense ross treatment in those books especially in the dying animal i think can distract from uh, from some of the more interesting interesting things going on within them so yeah yeah um and finally as far as controversies the nobel what are your thoughts yes. on that <laughs> yes i mean i think certainly he deserved it um i we have to go back to when did Dylan win that? Well, that was about three 20, years ago. 2015, 
2016. Yeah. I think we were we were at the Updike conference. We were at the Updike. I remember we people grumbling about it. Exactly. We were in <laughs> South Carolina when that news broke. That's right. Um, and I'm a huge Dylan fan. I love Dylan. My son is named Dylan. Yeah, I, but say, I always felt know. like the, uh, the Nobel did that. The committee did that as a slap, not only to, to Roth, but to the whole cohort of American writers, uh, you know, Pinchin DeLillo, who could, you know, easily Didion that you could easily make a case for um, winning, winning it. Um, so it, there seems to be a sort of anti-American uh, bias to the, to the to the Nobel, and, and their sort of perverse way of giving the prize to an American was to give it to Dylan. I think. Um, in terms of a career, I mean, I think uh, Roth was certainly deserving, as Updike was deserving, as Delilah was deserving, as Pension is deserving, as Didion is deserving. But I, I get the sense that none of them are, are are going to end up end up getting it. So, yeah. Plus, the Nobel the Nobel Prize is kind of a you know what what does it really mean if you look back at the the list of past winners there's a lot of really embarrassing stuff on there because so much of it especially early on was about like elevating the human spirit or what whatever nonsense so you get a lot of people who should have won not winning and a lot of people who shouldn't have won winning and and then it gets explicitly political at least in the 90s maybe before that and you get you know, I've heard that Pinter, for example, whom I can't stand, I've heard that one of the reasons he won uh, was as, uh, because his open criticism of George W. Bush. I don't know if that's true or not, but I do hate Pinter, and it's it's silly that he won the Nobel <laughs> Prize to me. Yeah, um, and one of the reasons I was always I was always reading that well, we American fiction is too provincial and it's not worldwide in scope, and and that. Never and then, made, then Ishiguro wins. Right. Well, but also it never made any sense. Well, I mean, Alice Monroe as well, who's like awesome. Right, I love right. Alice Monroe. Yeah, no, no, right? She's great. And, like, oh, it's not a shot at either one of them. But yeah, she writes about small, short stories about little towns in Canada, right? I mean, how much more provincial, like literally, can you get there? Um, but also Roth, I mean, he did a lot of like political work outside of um, his fiction to Pro, uh, promote and actually kind of uh, rescue uh, Eastern, Eastern European writers, writers yep. right? I mean, that's part of what's going on in the Prague Orgy is, is a story like that where there's an attempt to get a manuscript um, based on, uh, oh gosh, uh, who's the guy with the lost... Uh, <laughs> Shoot, uh, my brain—I just had a, a brain fart. Uh, but the, the, there's a, a real story of a, of a writer whose work was lost in Nazi Germany, basically, right? Um, and uh, and I can't remember his name. And so um, I'm sure it'll come to me as soon as we hang up the call. But it's sort of based on that. You have this kind of um, story um, about the rescue of literature from another part of the world that's politically oppressed, right? And so not only does he write fiction about that, he actually does that in his life, right? I mean, he actually, um, does a lot of work to, um, to promote writers from Eastern Europe. And so I think that, um, just on their own grounds, their argument makes no sense. Um, and yeah, and I always saw the Dylan thing too, is just kind of a, uh, a, Almost a Rothian joke. Uh, I mean, it's almost right. like something Roth would have written in a Zuckerman book. <laughs> he probably thought it was funny. Uh, did, did he ever weigh in on that? I don't think he did. I don't think he made a statement. So uh, at least none that I can recall. So and, yeah. and there is a you know when he won the the Man Booker Prize, there was a lot of controversy about that. Um, somebody on the committee quit and said that reading Roth's fiction is like having somebody sit on your face or something along those lines. <laughs> Which Amy Pozarski 
uh, she said we should get that. Which that should be the slogan of the of the Raw Society. <laughs> He'll sit on your face. <laughs> we were going to uh, make buttons For or something. Fifty years. <laughs> so, um, well, anyway, yeah, so Roth is a, a major figure with those kinds of, uh, controversies. Um, and I, it's, it's just as a way to kind of wrap this up a little bit. Um, I thought it's only appropriate. This is what was most impressive to me when we actually saw Philip Roth speak was he didn't really give much of a speech. He just read four or five pages from Sabbath's theater, right? Uh, and, uh, and it was compelling and just gorgeous. And so I thought we could each sort of pick a passage that we think is particularly um, noteworthy in whatever way and, and just sort of um, 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 talk about why. And if you don't mind, I'll start um, just to make sure that I don't uh, – uh, oops, I grabbed the wrong book though. It's over here. Um, just to make sure that I don't uh, step on any of your toes, I'm going to read something from the Ghost Rider. Um the uh the or i'm sorry excuse me uh zuckerman unbound is uh, uh the book it's the second book of the zuckerman bound trilogy uh and so yeah and so zuckerman unbound is where zuckerman is kind of living out the consequences of roth's alienation of his community right and this is not just a joke, right? This book ends on a quite serious note. He ends up going back to his old house in Newark, right? And now the Jewish community of his youth is gone, right? And it's, it's a, an African American neighborhood. And I, I just think that this, uh, the ending of this novel, he writes particularly great last paragraphs. Um, the human stain, I think, has one of the great last paragraphs ever. Um, but I think Zuckerman Unbound has one as well, where you kind of feel the weight of, the consequences of his actions. Like this is not a character who does things without regard to the consequences. He does things, there are consequences and he feels those consequences. And so um, he's standing at the, uh, at this building, a young black man, his head completely shaved, stepped up or excuse me, stepped out of one of the houses with a German shepherd and stared down from the stoop at the chauffeur driven limousine in front of his alleyway and at the white man in the back seat who was looking his place up and down. A chain fence surrounded the three-story house and the little garden of weeds out front. Had the fellow cared to ask, Zuckerman could without any trouble have told him the names of the three families who had lived in the flats on each floor before World War II. But that wasn't what this black man wished to know. Who are you supposed to be, he said. No one, replied Zuckerman. And that was the end of that. You are no longer any man's son. You are no longer some good woman's husband. You are no longer your brother's brother. And you don't come from anywhere anymore either. They skipped the grade school and the playground and the hot dog joint and headed back to New York, passing on the way out to the uh, parkway, uh, excuse me, passing on the way out to the parkway, the synagogue where he'd taken Hebrew lessons after school until he was 13. It was now an African Methodist Episcopal church. And that's the end of that, um, of that novel. And it's just, to me, it's like really kind of chilling. I get goosebumps even to this day reading that just sort of the weight of your ambition to be an individual has just driven you from every kind of route that you ever had. Right. And so that's a really powerful, um, sentence or paragraph in which there are consequences that this writer does recognize, right? This isn't just a flippant person who's just flipping the bird at everybody for the fun of it, right? Um, he re There is a seriousness to him uh, right in the middle of that Zuckerman trilogy, that first Zuckerman trilogy. Um, so that one stands out to me. Um, I don't know. Uh, Michael, do you want to go next? 
Yeah, I will, because actually mine covers some of that same ground, I think. Okay. This, is, this is from The Human Stain. I'm going to read two paragraphs and skip one in the middle. This, uh, so Zuckerman, again, has withdrawn to the Berkshires. He's withdrawn from public life. The secret to living in the rush of the world with a minimum of pain is to get as many people as possible to string along with your delusions. <laughs> the trick to living alone up here, away from all agitating entanglements, allurements, and expectations, apart especially from one's own intensity, is to organize the silence, to think of its mountaintop plenitude as capital. Silence is wealth exponentially increasing. The encircling silence is your chosen source of advantage and your only intimate. The trick is to find sustenance in Hawthorne again, quote, the communications of a solitary mind with itself. The secret is to find sustenance in people like Hawthorne and the wisdom of the brilliant deceased. I'll skip a paragraph. So why then, having turned the experiment of radical seclusion into a rich, full, solitary existence, why with no warning should I be lonely? Lonely for what? What's gone is gone. There's no relaxing the rigor, no undoing the renunciations. Lonely for precisely what? Simple. For what I had developed an aversion to. For what I had turned my back on. For life. The entanglement with life. So you get Zuckerman withdrawing into himself, which is to say withdrawing into a total freedom, and then showing us the horrible is too strong of a word, the, the significant consequences of such a freedom. And, and something in that seems very Rothian to me and very American as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, just background for the listener who may not be familiar with Roth. The Zuckerman books come in kind of sets. There's a this first trilogy with an epilogue, the Progorgy, once they're sort of bound as Zuckerman bound. Um, uh, and all these are available on Library of America, by the way. I guess I should have mentioned that at the beginning. He's one of the few writers who's had his work as a li- or living writer who had his work anthologized. He's the first one to have it as a living writer. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and so uh, in the first Zuckerman trilogy, you have the young Nathan Zuckerman making his way in the literary world, the sexual depravity, this uh, vivaciousness. There's a lot of kind of icky stuff, particularly in the anatomy lesson uh, with, uh, with you know, sex in the body and that kind of thing. Um, and then in the later American, trilogy Zuckerman becomes basically the narrator of other people's stories he's an old man at this point and also impotent due to some uh, prostate cancer I think it was and um, and so he has a, uh, uh, a this sort of sexual appetite as a young man is taken away from him and he has no more capacity to do in the world anymore he just has this ability to tell basically and create uh and so this uh this is what he's dealt with uh left with in in uh in the human stain uh which michael just read from um great stuff um matthew um american pastoral right yes yes so uh, american pastoral is the first installment of the american trilogy which is the second nathan zuckerman um series and as you're discussing it's when uh zuckerman is older uh, he's he's impotent and he's imagining other people's lives. Uh, but beyond just imagining other people's lives, he's trying to uh, construct a story of what happened to the nation uh, and during the course of his lifetime. All the three books in the series, American Pastoral, I Married a Communist, and The Human Stain, which Michael read from, all sort of pinpoint specific moments within a, within the sort of post-war trajectory and question how they how they occurred and how we understand them and American Pastoral is uh, a book that revisits the the tumult of the late 1960s um, and through the through the story of Sweet Love who is a sort of wonderful 
high school athlete who seems to be the sort of all-American Jewish boy from Newark, uh, um, but whose life has exploded when his daughter commits an uh, act of domestic terrorism uh, during the late late 1960s. Uh, the passage I'm going to read is from the very opening section of that book, uh, it's where, where Zuckerman's really considering uh, the difficulty we have in knowing other people and knowing ourselves, and it's really one of my favorite passages. Uh, it's a passage I, I, um, I, I paraphrase a lot when I'm teaching because I think it does a wonderful job of both suggesting the necessity and the, the limits of fiction in terms of how we understand ourselves, how we understand each other, how we understand our history, how we understand our own identity. Um, this is just a long paragraph. Uh, you fight your superficiality, your shallowness, so as to try to come at people without unreal expectations, without an overload of bias or hope or arrogance, as untank-like as you can be, sans cannon and machine guns and steel plating half a foot thick. You come at them unmenacingly on your own tin toes instead of tearing up the turf with your caterpillar treads. Take them on with an open mind as equals, man-to-man, as we used to say, and yet you never fail to get them wrong. You might as well have the brain of a tank. You get them wrong before you meet them. While you're anticipating meeting them, you get them wrong while you're with them. And then you go home to tell somebody else about them, <clears throat> about the meeting, and you get them wrong all again. Since the same generally goes for them with you, the whole thing is really a dazzling illusion, empty of all perception, an astonishing farce of misperception. And yet, what are we to do about the, this terribly significant business of other people, which gets blood of the significance we think it has and takes us on instead of, instead of a significance that is ludicrous? So ill-equipped are we all to envision one another's interior workings and invisible aims. Is everyone to go off and lock the door and sit secluded like the lonely writers do in a soundproof cell, summoning people out of words and then proposing that these word, the, these word people are closer to the real thing than the real people that we mangle with our ignorance every day? The fact remains that getting people right is not what living is all about anyway. It's getting them wrong that is living, getting them wrong and wrong and wrong and wrong, and then on careful re reconsideration, getting them wrong again. That's how we know we're alive. We're wrong. Maybe the best thing would be to forget being right or wrong about people and just go along for the ride. But if you can do that, well, lucky you. <laughs> and I just love that passage. Um, um, and it nicely sets up, I think, for Roth, you know, both the necessity and limits of, of, of storytelling and how fiction is a necessity for understanding the world, but yet how we can never quite get ourselves or other people or our history quite right. These are all stories that have their limitations and their problems, and um, we're forced to just to sort of and compelled to, to construct them despite our wrongness. And you also have that wonderful list of wrong and wrong and wrong. I mean, that's, for me, the heart of Roth's prose when he gets going on something like that. Yeah, that that is my favorite passage in literature. Um, actually, I, I just I, I love that. And honestly, you know, stepping back to kind of an ethical question for us today as, as a society, I mean, even for me to say the word us is offensive to our society, right? We're such a society of individuals. Um, th this is one thing that makes Roth almost incompatible with our, our current mode of interaction. Um, when he talks about um, fighting your superficiality and shallowness at the beginning and coming pe at people as untank-like as you can, there's this sort of 
sincerity built into that stance where you mm. are truly like open to another person's experience. And despite that, you can't get them right. Right. Um, we don't even begin with that openness, right? We go at everybody tank like, I mean, social media is, uh, is sort of the kind of catalyst for a lot of this, I think, but, uh, it, it's not limited to that. We, we have this sort of this ecstasy of sanctimony, as he says at the beginning of the human stain. Um, we just love to be right about everything. And I feel like what Roth is giving us is this alternative vision where that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is to just sort of approach people on, um, on their terms, try to understand them knowing that you never will. Right. And, and how much, right. how much better would our, uh, our political system work if we were all willing to do something like that? Well, not to be a, you know, evangelist for the English department or for English majors. Right. <laughs> but this is what we try to do when we read fiction is to imagine other people's lives and to empathize. Right. Uh, yeah. and uh, I think that's why I love that passage. I mean, it, it gives a sort of call for what we, we, we all strive strive to do, and yet we still get people wrong. And that's what's sort of wonderful and awful and human about, about it. So Yeah, and the trick is just to accept that. Um, um, fellas, any other thoughts on, uh, on Philip Roth? Uh, again, I mean, uh, I hate to say it, someone at 85 it was a surprise, but it was a surprise when he passed. And he, he really can't imagine, I think uh, – someone in today's literary climate quite having the same sort of impact. And the one thing we didn't quite discuss was the notoriety that he got with, with Portnoy's complaint and the amount of celebrity, really. Um, uh, literature just doesn't quite have the sort of impact that it did at that particular moment in the, in the late 60s, uh, in, uh, 50s and 60s and into the 70s. Um, we're, we're dealing with a sort of more diminished role for literature, I think. Someone on Twitter asks, um, who do we have left from that generation? And I think the two obvious answers are Toni Morrison, who is probably also not too long for the world. I mean, she's been sick for years now. And uh, DeLillo. Um, and, and that's kind of who we have left, unless you count John Barth yeah. and Pynchon, maybe. Pynchon, uh, you, Pynchon and maybe Joan Didion, if you're going to count her journalism. Uh, sure. But it's, it's a very small group of that generation who are, are left and um, seem to be winding down their careers. I mean, um, uh, I mean, who knows? Pension might surprise us with another 2000 page tome in the next couple <laughs> months. I, you know, uh, I don't know, but um, uh, the, the, you know, for, for a group of writers who are as prolific as they were, that they they seem to be slowing down. So, yeah. Which I mean, who can blame them? No, <laughs> when you enter your eighties, right? Yeah, but but it is also sad. I mean, I read, uh, you know, some. I've been I've been prosing through the the hot takes on Roth, and you know, when he wants to, what does this mean for us? What does this signify? Uh, and I think there are some people who, I mean, rightly identify. Adam Kirsch has a really great um, piece on the Atlantic about it. Um, I'll, I'll put links to that. Um, uh, up about sort of just taking this time to meditate about what it means. I think it is a. I mean, it's a sign of a passing of an era, right? I mean, Roth is really the one of the last people and the last, the biggest of the last people, uh, who like represent this older era in which the seriousness of fiction affected more than just English departments, right? Uh, and, and a few coterie, a, a coterie of readers. It was more. And that's crass. Seriousness matched with a sort of commercial viability. I yeah. mean, we have with Roth with Portnoy's and Updike with couples, you yeah. know kind of literary heavyweights on the sort of bestseller list in a way that 
I don't think it's possible today. Yeah, exactly. it's a little like when Jacques Barzun died a few years ago. He's the generation before Roth, but he was a hundred years old. I mean, literally like a hundred and two years old. And yeah. I like Barzun. He's not my favorite from that generation. But when he died, it was the end of what Louis Manan calls the heroic critics. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, they're just they're they're not around anymore, and that's a shame. And, and there are people though that kind of celebrate this like this was an albatross around our neck and we were looking to these old white men as 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 heroes and and founts of wisdom and thank goodness they're gone we can move on to and now everybody's a fount of their own wisdom and and i just now now we've got beyonce (laughs) well i just find that to be I don't find that to be celebratory. I find that to be kind of, uh, something to lament. I think, I think that Roth gave us something, even in his flaws, right? To, to bounce off against and, and to try and be better than he was. Uh, and, and, and I feel like with that kind of standard, if you will, I mean, and I guess I'm, I'm being very old fashioned here with that, with the disappearance of that. Um, I think we are entering into that weightlessness that trilling, um, I think wrongly identified at the beginning. The trilling would go bananas today. And so I I feel like, um, I feel like we are in this sort of weightless culture and we're just going to be floating around, you know, with no kind of purpose. And so I, I think that it is something to lament. Um, and I mean, fortunately, the books are always there uh, for people right. who are interested in, in, you know, tackling something that will challenge them. They always will be there. Right. Um, and uh, and I think that that's that's the bright spot. But I'm not definitely not celebrating the passing of that era. I think it's something to mourn. And there's something I mean, this perhaps a little too sentimental, but someone as prolific as Roth, there was something very comforting uh, about going to your bookstore every year and picking up a new volume yeah. and sort of following where this mind was going. The same thing with Updike. I mean, there's real pleasure in following these, these not only long careers, but incredibly prolific careers. Um, um, uh, uh, Roth was an incredibly hard worker. Um, and just that, that, you know, there's something sad about not going to the bookstore every year and, and knowing that you you can pick up a new Roth book uh, yeah. or a new, new Updike book or, or yeah. you know, so. Absolutely. And I can't believe Roth actually kept to his silence when he retired. Was that 2010? I, everybody- I think. His last book is 2010, and I think he announces the retirement in 2012, if, if memory serves. Yeah, I, I remember everybody saying that that wasn't going to last very long, and it, and it did. He didn't, uh, as no, far as did. I know, didn't publish anything again. He settled no, in. gave a few interviews. Um, I mean, I think he got very much in, interested in reading history, uh, American history, uh, um, uh, but no, he was, and he, I think he was also interested in. Uh, um, Overseeing his biography to a certain extent, as much as one can oversee one's biography. Yeah. Um, Blake Lively, I believe that is right. right? Um, yep. that, that should be coming out. I mean, he said he was pretty close to being done with it, actually. So, right. Wait, and he, Blake, uh, Blake Lively? Yeah. The the actress? No, no. no uh, oh, maybe I said it wrong. Uh, Blake. I think you did. <laughs> <Yeah>. Oh, geez. Uh, <laughs> Blake Lively was the blonde woman from uh, no, me- <laughs> from Gossip Girl. Um. <laughs> Well, Although I really like the idea of her writing a biography. She has this new career. Uh, uh, Maybe she'd play him in the movie. It could be like Mass in the Blake Bailey. Blake, Blake Bailey. Yes. Ah. That's, uh, yeah. Bailey. Oh, yeah. Okay. So he's the one who did the Cheever yeah. biography. Yes. Yes. Yeah. He did a Cheever, um, Cheever book. That was great. So. <laughs> Excuse me. But I think Roth was very much interested in sort of uh, helping – I don't know, oversee, but I think he was invested in, 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 in 
helping with that that project too. So yeah. Do you think they'll find non-published writings like they did for Salinger? That's a good question. I mean, he's he's given so much already to the archive. I mean, uh, most famously, a sort of draft of American Pastoral that comes from the uh, from I think seventy four, um, where he tackles the sort of bombing and the subject matter of the book, uh, and then shelves it for for twenty twenty plus years, uh, and instead writes uh, uh, the Great American Novel instead. Um, so, I mean, I think there have been instances where snippets like that have already been sort of sort of perused. Um, yeah. I don't know if there's going to be much of substance out there. And I do think uh, that there's a lot of really great archive work to be done now um, for, for scholars, I mean, given that he has um, given so much of that manuscript. I, I think just sort of following, because and he was such a uh, committed reviser uh, of his work, um, I think there's going to be a lot of really interesting scholarship to be done um, tracing that kind of process. And so, right. um, yeah. Um, so, yeah, and... For those of you who, I mean, uh, are unfamiliar with Philip Roth but are interested, there's a number of entryways, as we've said. There's these different periods. A great place to start that might feel more contemporary is that American trilogy for me. Um, if you want to sort of um, read a collection of really tightly spun um Short stories, Goodbye Columbus, never gets old, right? And, um, and a lot of people have been revisiting the plot against America for, I don't know, some reason lately. I don't know why, but, um, but there's been, uh, some renewed interest in the plot against America since, oh, 2016 or so. And, uh, and so there's a, uh, a, a number of entry points into his career, but, um, I, I really recommend the, the Zuckerman bound, um, collection. I think that it's a, a, a fascinating, um, actually look at Portnoy's complaint without reading Portnoy's complaint. You sort of <laughs> get it from another angle. And I think, it, I think it's fascinating. So, um, fellas, thank you so much. Um, Matthew Scheip, uh, get on the Philip Ross Society guys and, and go to the website, uh, and, uh, and join up. And there's lots of really cool resources for you all there. Matthew, thank you for joining us today. It was, uh, your insight in, uh, into this was awesome. Oh, thanks. This has been a real pleasure. I've had a great, great time talking off with you guys. Yeah. And, and Michael Farmer, you hear all the time on uh, the Christian Humanist uh, podcast, but also on this one. He's a he's a regular uh, uh, celebrity contestant. Thanks for letting me tag along with you two experts. <laughs> no, no, you had great things to say, uh, as, as always. I'm not at all surprised at this. Uh, and uh, if you all have any questions, uh, remember, we have a Facebook page uh, that you can find. If you go to sectarianreviewpodcast.com, you can find all of our show notes, and I'll try to put some links to some uh, notable uh, condolences and remembrances of Roth to, in this, and also a link to the Philip Roth Society and a number of other things uh, that are related to this episode. Um, but if you have any uh, questions, please do speak back to us. Uh, we uh, love to hear from listeners, and uh, in, uh, in the meantime, we will see you the next time.